This podcast is brought to you by Voice of Vets. Voice of Vets. Hear it. Feel it. Feel it. Feel it. Feel it. Feel it. Professor Madi, thank you so much for joining us. Can you please help us understand what coronavirus is? We have had a lot of names and explanations around this virus in the past seven months. We know that it is a respiratory disease that attacks a lot of parts of the body. Can you tell us more on the findings that you have been working on? Uh, so good day to you. So thank you for having me. So it's obviously not findings of my own, but rather findings of the scientific community, which has really evolved over the past few months in terms of how this virus is affecting us as humans and exactly what type of damage it might it's able to cause to the body. So as you correctly pointed out, the virus is a respiratory virus in that the major modality of spread is through respiratory droplets. But what we've now come to uncover is that in addition to causing pathology in the lung, this virus is capable of causing damage throughout the body, in fact. And the manner in which it does that is that it sort of allows for damage of the microvasculature, uh, which is sort of the blood vessels that sort of supply oxygen to various tissues and organs. And because of the damage to that vasculature, you've got what we call clots that are forming in these small vessels, which interrupts the flow of blood to those end organs, and that causes damage to the end organs. So most of the damage is still occurring in the lungs. And when there's the same sort of problem emerging in the lungs, where you've got impaired oxygen flow to the air sacs, uh, you've got an uh, impairment in terms of oxygenation, the amount of oxygen that enters into the blood, which is what is required. So that is really what has, what has emerged over the past few months, that it is spread by the respiratory roots predominantly, but the pathology that it causes results in sort of a multi-organ dysfunction, and especially for individuals uh, that end up with very severe disease. It can affect the brain, it can affect the, affect the heart, the kidney, the lung, the skins, the skin, uh, muscle. Uh, it pretty much can affect any part of the body. This is quite a sobering picture you paint of this, uh, Professor Madi. Now, in... In, in, in over the course of the seven months um, that uh, we referred to earlier that has passed, so much, like I said earlier, has changed and so much has developed. We were told first that this is a respiratory disease that can be spread through droplets and on surfaces um, and that it was not airborne. We have since been told that COVID-19 is airborne or can be transmitted through airborne. And... We've also been told uh, from the likes of Dr. William Kieser that the isolation period has gone down from 14 days to just the 10 days. Can you tell us more about where and how so much has changed about, the, about what we know about COVID-19? Yeah, so I think the mode of transmission of this virus is certainly something that has evolved in terms of our, our knowledge, certainly at the time. When the virus was first identified in Wuhan in China, the thinking was that the main mode of spread of the virus was uh, sort of uh, when people were coming into contact with contaminated droplets of someone that was infected or if you were in very close vicinity to someone that was infected. And that's the reason why right at the start of the outbreak, we were really emphasizing uh, the issue around hygiene, sanitizing, 
the environment and sort of ensuring some level of physical distancing from people that were infected so that one couldn't infect another person directly with these contaminated droplets. But over time, what has evolved is that there's been a number of different experiences which indicate that it is not biologically plausible that that is the only mode of transmission of the virus. For example, you've got a group of people that uh, are in a church, in a choir, and out of that group of roughly about 40 people, there's one person that's infected, and all of a sudden, uh, that person appears to have infected more than two-thirds of the other choir members. Now, that sort of transmission is unlikely to occur because the other 27 or 30 people came into direct contact with that one person or the contaminated surface. So that, together with other sort of... Uh, uh, studies in the laboratory looking at the flow of air and the flow of contaminated droplets of different size, particle size, basically raised the flag that what might be happening is that in addition to this uh, fomite spread, which is basically contact on contaminated surfaces and you end up inadvertently infecting yourself, is that there might also be airborne transmission. And over time, I think there's increasing evidence that this virus also transmits through the airborne route. And that obviously has led to a change in terms of the type of uh, precautions that we ask people to exercise to try to reduce the rate of transmission. That includes the wearing of uh, face masks when in public, as well as to ensure that there's adequate ventilation when you're in spaces and to avoid overcrowded situations. So there has been this evolution of uh, data which has sort of uh, allowed us to refine uh, the type of recommendations that we come about in terms of what can be done to reduce the risk of someone becoming infected. That does not mean that people won't become infected. Uh, unfortunately, even in the best case scenario, we're still going to end up having people getting infected. But what we really need to guard against is that people shouldn't get infected over a very narrow period of time because that would pretty much collapse our healthcare systems. So as a summary, the virus basically does spread because of contact with contaminated surfaces, uh, as well as when people are in close proximity to each other, they're speaking or breathing, they release these micro droplets, and these micro droplets might end up directly on the surface, mucus surface of another person and infect that person. But in addition to that, people might actually inhale these micro droplets that are suspended in the air, and it can remain suspended up to two to three hours in very poorly ventilated closed spaces, usually about 10 to 12 minutes. So you could basically be in this poorly ventilated area, someone else that was infected with the virus, was in that vicinity, was speaking or coughing, those micro droplets remain suspended and they're contaminated with the virus and someone can actually inhale it. So the relative role of each of the different modalities of uh, acquisition really differs based on the particular setting. Uh, and I think that's important. But what it really tells us is that we need to be on guard at multiple fronts in terms of trying to reduce our risk of either spreading the virus uh, as well as of becoming infected. So the second point that you raised was the issue of the change in terms of uh, the isolation period. Uh, and when we talk of isolation, we're referring to someone that has been infected with the virus uh, and how long that person remains infectious. So the earlier data was based on how the median, the mean duration of time that we were able to identify the virus using molecular detection assays. Uh, and that is basically looking for viral particles, but not necessarily for live virus. 
what has happened over the past uh, few weeks is that there's now scientific evidence to show that very few people uh, that are infected with a virus will be shedding live virus after day eight of symptom onset. Uh, and that's one of the reasons why there's been a revision that uh, people that are, can go back to work uh, 10 days after symptom onset, because by that stage, very few, very few, if any people, especially if they've been otherwise healthy, would still be shedding uh, the virus. It's different for people that might have ended up in hospital that remain symptomatic. Uh, that category of individuals need to be managed differently and they need to be asymptomatic before they go back into intermingling in society. So much of the evidence, uh, so what we really find ourselves doing is sort of trying to keep up to pace with our recommendations in relation to the new scientific evidence that's coming forward which sort of guides us as to what the best practice should be. Indeed. And your mention of the masks is a great segue to my next question, because we do indeed need to ramp up our efforts as far as remaining on guard. Now, the topic of masks has been a contentious one, not just here in South Africa, but all across the world. We've seen people wearing masks under their noses. We have seen people argue that wearing masks at all is uh, damaging to their health or can impede their health, can impede their ability to breathe. What is the correct way of wearing a mask which would prevent the spread of the disease? And are, the, are, the, are there any reasonable links to draw between the people who perhaps wear their mask incorrectly or wear their mask below their noses? Is there any way to link the people who still do that to the presence of confirmed cases or the continued pre presence of confirmed cases? So the issue of masks uh, unfortunately remains contentious, but, but probably for the wrong reasons. So I think the reality is that uh, even the WHO at a certain stage, in fact, until about six weeks ago, didn't actually recommend the use of masks. And again, that was because of our previous uh, thinking as to how this virus was being spread. South Africa and the recommendation to use a face mask in public in South Africa preceded the recommendation that came forward from WHO. So we were sort of someone ahead, somewhat ahead of the game compared to where WHO were, but at the same time, we were lagging behind what was being done in many South Asian countries and Southeast Asian countries where they've been using masks uh, from the start. Now, how to wear the mask? So, there are different sort of types of masks, and the type of mask that you're using will determine just what effect that mask will actually have. So in the public, as an example, we do not advocate the use of what we call N95 masks. Those are sort of uh, respiratory masks. And the reason for that is that those are in short supply, they're quite expensive, and they're needed by our healthcare workers. So those sort of masks both prevent you from spreading the virus as well as uh, sort of uh, reduces your risk of inhaling contaminated particles, especially these very small uh, particles that I was referring to that remain suspended in the air. So those are the N95 masks, and we really do have a shortage. So we're really needing to safeguard it for the healthcare workers because they've got the greatest exposure in terms of the virus uh, because of the environment that they're working in. And then we've got the three-ply uh, surgical masks. Now, again, those are fairly expensive and they're not routinely recommended for use in the public. 
Uh, they again required in our healthcare facilities, but if the supply chain improves for the three price surgical masks, that is something which we probably should be using more widely in the community. Those surgical masks sort of lend some protection in terms of the spread of the virus, uh, it reduces it, and it might also assist in terms of protecting against being infected. Now, the third category of masks is what we recommend for use in public, and that is the cloth masks. Uh, and those are sort of the non-surgical masks. And those masks, again, they come as different qualities, but the main purpose of those masks is basically to minimize the risk of someone that is infected with a virus, knowingly or unknowingly, to spread the virus. So those masks are less effective in terms of protecting someone from becoming infected uh, because they, the construct of that mask doesn't allow adequate filtering out of particles in the atmosphere that a person might inhale, as an example. So those masks, are, but they are effective in terms of reducing the transmission of infected droplets into the environment uh, and into the immediate vicinity. So that's the reason why we advocate. So there's the non-surgical mask that we ask the public to use is really to assist us in terms of reducing the spread of the virus. And we need to remember that in adults, uh, roughly about one out of every two adults that are infected with the virus, they will be completely asymptomatic. So they won't know that they're infected, but just by virtue of speaking or breathing, they would still be able to release these contaminated droplets and inadvertently end up infecting other people that are in close proximity to them. Uh, and that is the reason why we use those masks. Now, should you use it just over your mouth or your nose? And the answer is that uh, the most often way that you're going to spread the virus is really through when you're speaking, when you're breathing, when you're coughing, when you talk, uh, when you're breathing and when you're coughing. So it's basically coming out from your mouth. But having the mask under your nose basically leaves a gap between your nose and your mouth and those particles are going to be expelled and go into the environment. So the correct way to do it is to ensure that it is over the nose, covering the chin, and in fact, at the nose, it needs to be fairly tight around the bridge of the nose. And that is the correct way to use it. It serves very little value to be used as a chin guard or as a hat. Uh, it really needs to be around the nose and the mouth uh, for it to be effective in terms of what we're trying to achieve by advocating for its use. So, Prof, for those who still argue against the use of masks, for those who still advocate that masks are not to be trusted, not to be used, could that be viewed as serious threats on the lives of others? And should um, law enforcement perhaps act accordingly towards those people who refuse to wear a mask despite um, being told under no, under no uncertain terms that they absolutely have to wear a mask when they're in public? Yeah, I think without question, uh, when in public and especially in, in shared spaces, uh, someone that is not wearing a mask needs to be taken to task, not just by law enforcement people, but also by citizens, uh, because that person is putting others in that environment at risk of, of being infected. And like I said, it's immaterial whether that person that's not wearing the mask is symptomatic or asymptomatic, because one out of every two people that are infected with the virus are asymptomatic, but they can still spread the virus. So it is a sort of societal responsibility that we need to take on and understand that we're not just doing it to protect ourselves, but we're doing it to protect others. Uh, and I think one of the dangers that we face is that 
fortunately for young people, for people in their 20s and 30s, as well as teenagers, this virus can cause them to be infected, but they rarely ever develop severe illness. So they think that they're sort of immune against the virus, which to some extent is true, in that they're very, very unlikely to develop severe disease, but they are responsible for spreading the virus to other individuals that they come into contact with, including their parents, as an example, and their grandparents. And when the parents and grandparents get infected with this virus, then they're going to suffer indirectly because their grandparents and parents, who especially if they've got comorbidities such as hypertension, obesity, diabetes, they're going to end up with severe disease. So we're doing it not just for ourselves, we're also doing it for the broader community and for other members in our households. When we protect ourselves from becoming infected, uh, as well as when we try to reduce the chances of us spreading it uh, in our environment. We've just heard from Professor Shabir A. Mahdi, a professor of vaccinology at the School of Pathology at the University of the Witwatersrand, director of the world-renowned Medical Research Council, VIDA, which stands for Vaccines and Infectious Diseases Analytics Research Unit, joining us here on the show to help further bust the myths and clarify and refine our understanding of what COVID-19 is, the dangers that COVID-19 poses, and the ways in which we can continue to arm ourselves with knowledge that we can use to protect ourselves against COVID-19. This podcast was brought to you by Voice of Vids. By Voice of Vids. To hear more of our shows, tune in to 88.1 or streams via www.varfm.co.za.